Good morning, everyone doing well? Everyone good? Good? Missed you guys last week. Uh, it's a really weird thing when you take a vacation and I'm like, I, I kind of miss work. Uh, I guess that's good, but um, Savut did a great job, right? Savut did a really wonderful job. He's not offended by this, so don't get offended when I say this, but I, I, I said, Savut, my favorite thing about you teaching is all the emails I get complimenting how good you did, but no one knows how to spell your name correctly. So, so seeing all the, the, the misspellings of his name, is um, that's a lot of fun. So again, hope you had a good 4th of July. Hope no one blew anything up that they weren't supposed to or didn't get hurt or anything like that. If you're new to the South, because we have a lot of people from the West Coast, the Northeast, who have moved into this area recently, um, people in the South do 4th of July a, a, little bit, a, a little bit higher of a level than other parts of the country. It starts about two weeks before the 4th of July, ends about mid-August, and uh, <laughs> your dogs hate it. If you live in a neighborhood, you hate it, you know, but uh, that's just the way they do it around here. So anyways, we are working through a book of the Bible called First Peter, and again, Savut did a fantastic job with chapter two last week. This is an interesting book. Um, it's interesting because we're kind of seeing a, a a cycle of history repeating itself a little bit from what was going on in the first century to now what's going on in the 21st century where we live. So this book was written in about, it was a letter written in about 62 to 64 AD from a guy named Peter to a group of churches in what is modern day Turkey. And the reason he was led, uh, writing this letter to them is the Roman government was becoming very hostile towards Christians. Now, let me tell you something, a little, little interesting history, history lesson that we're starting to see again in our culture. Um, the Roman Empire had no problem with Christianity until Christians started speaking things that contradicted the way that the Romans lived. Listen to that for a second. Everyone was fine with Christianity until Christians started saying things like sexual activity should happen between a married man and a married woman, right? Um, then there was a problem. Whenever the Christians started saying things like, there's only one pathway to get to heaven, then there was a problem, right? Because the Caesar thought that he was God. So there started to be an issue when, when conviction started to come in to the equation. That's exactly what we're seeing nowadays in our time. So the, the United States is fine with people saying they're Christians, as long as you don't say things that make me feel conviction about the way I'm living. Then there starts to be persecution on whatever level that may be. So what was happening in, in the Roman Empire during the first century that Peter was writing about, we're starting to see very, very similar things start to happen in our nation today. And what Savut talked about last week is that when we follow the Bible, when we have a relationship with God, how we live looks different from the culture in which we live in, right? We can't be isolated from culture. We have to be in the world. We're not of the world, but we are in the world. But how we function, how we live, how we treat others, how we treat our spouse and our friends and, and even people that don't like us should look dramatically different than the culture that we are immersed in, right? That's what Savut was talking about a little bit last week. To keep building on that, what chapter three in 1 Peter is going to talk about is that we cannot separate, we cannot detach our love of God and love of people. So how we treat people corresponds to, to our relationship with God. They, they're, they're intrinsically connected. We cannot disconnect these two things. So what chapter three is gonna talk about is he's gonna talk about kind of three different levels of human interactions that we have. 
The first one is for married couples. And if you're not married in here, it's, it's okay. These principles are very, very important if you're ever going to get married and, and um, it's just important to know. Talks about how we treat people that we're married to, that we claim to love more than anyone else, right? Peter is gonna talk about how we interact with other Christians and non-Christians, virtually all people we interact with. And then the last part is gonna be extremely difficult. Not difficult to understand, difficult to apply. How do we treat those who are hostile towards us? Those who do not like us, who maybe even seek to harm us, ridicule us, talk bad about us. How do we deal with that according to the Bible, right? How do we do that as Christians? So we cannot separate how we treat others in our relationship with God. They are connected. So we're gonna talk about today. Easy to understand. I make the argument, I think 99% of the Bible is very, very easy to comprehend. It is not always easy to do, right? That's why Savut even used the scripture from James last week. We're not just to be hearers of the word. That part's pretty easy. We're to be doers of the word and humanity gets complicated because they are humans and sometimes it's tough, right? So everything we're gonna talk about, you should've got a notes handout. Everything will be in there. Everything will be on the screens around the room. Um, if you have the Experience Community app, just click on Sermon Notes. Everything is right there, and we should be in pretty good shape. If you're a woman in this room, be patient with me in this first part. Um, it, it will be okay, I promise. Just let me get through reading it. If you've already read it, you know what I'm talking about. So uh, uh, anyways, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna read a little bit, and I'm gonna thoroughly explain this first part a lot, and then we will work through the rest of this chapter, okay? All right? Father, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you so much. Lord, I love this church, God. Um, as much as I loved being on vacation, Lord, this, this, this is my extended family and I'm happy to be back with them. God, I pray that you bless our church today. We need it. Lord, the world, the world is hostile, Father. It's very aggressive right now on, on all fronts and on all sides. So Father, I pray, Lord, that you just keep your hand on our church, that we can navigate the, the times that we are in. We pray for every church in our city. We pray for our other campuses and the churches in those cities. We pray that everything we do this morning, Lord, that it blesses you, honors you, and then, of course, God, that it, that it brings us closer to you. I pray that we can go out and love others the way you love us. We love you. We thank you. Pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here we go. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word... They may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure and reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles or wearing gold jewelry, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's eyes. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as if with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. This is a part of the scripture that is taking way out of context. People read this, 
They think that the Bible is misogynistic, that women are second class to men, and this is absolutely not the case, and that's what I'm going to explain here. So this section was written by Peter mostly to women who were married to non-believing men. That's who this is for. But the principles in this section apply to all married people, okay? It works for all of us in here who are married. The first thing that Peter says that we kind of recoil at sometimes because it's become a bad word in our society because it's been taken out of context is the word submit or submission. All submission means by definition is this, to voluntarily give up your wants and your desires and your rights for the sake of someone else and that's how you express love. So all submission is, is I give up what I want so you can have what you want. That's all that means. And biblically, wives are called to do this with their husbands, hold on, unless the husband demands something out of them that is not biblical. And then at that point, no deal, right? Because ultimately, everyone answers to God first, right? So women submit to their husband unless their husbands ask them to do something that contradicts their beliefs. Now, submission... It's not a bad thing and it's not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of leadership. So Peter encourages women to submit because it may actually lead non-believing husbands to Christ. This is done not by nagging or condescending or preaching at your husband, but by living the way the Bible tells us to live. Now this is what Jesus did. So again, instantly people say, well, how can I submit to a non-believing spouse? the same way that Jesus submitted to a non-believing Jewish council and a non-believing Roman government. So Jesus submitted to a group of non-believers. Why? To show them a higher way of living. And because of that, a lot of the non-believing Jewish people and Roman people came to faith in Christ. We see this all throughout the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how Jesus lived in quiet submission to God and to the authorities to a certain extent to where it didn't contradict his relationship with God. Another thing that Peter says that can be taken way out of context is he says, women, don't let your elaborate hairstyles and and your gold jewelry be what makes you beautiful. And I always laugh when I write these things and I read these things because I sense like people are like trying to sneak off like their nice jewelry and put this in your pocket. Um, Now there's nothing wrong with having a nice hairstyle or wearing nice jewelry. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. What Peter is saying to women, and I think some of you women need to hear this, especially in American culture, where we only value women if they look a certain way and if they're, they're you know, anyways. Like, like what Peter is saying is, it's okay to be outwardly beautiful. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with being attractive. But we need to make sure that we are constantly working on our inward beauty, our character, Right? And those of us in this room who've been married for any length of time, I still think my wife's the most beautiful woman on planet earth, but neither one of us look like we did 25 years ago when we first met. But I'm gonna tell you, it is is who she is at her core that I am genuinely attracted to, that I wanna wake up to every single morning until I die. And obviously that's why how she feels about me, because this is not the same as it was when we first met. But it is, it is not just the external beauty, because I hate to tell you young people that, it's gonna go away. It fades, right? Doesn't matter how much you work out, like this keeps sticking out. And, and so <laughs> there has to be something deeper in this. My wife is probably watching right now going, Corey, get back to the Bible, let's do that. 
So women are told to pursue, look at this, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now again, some woman's gonna say, wait, you're saying the women just need to be quiet and sit over there? That is not what Peter is saying. What Peter is saying is this, you guys ever known those people that are so insecure, they always have to get the last word? They're so insecure that they have to say things all the time and be the center of attention? Peter is saying, don't be like that. Be secure in who you are in God. And when we're secure in who we are in God, I don't have to argue with you all the time because I know who I am. That's what Peter is saying. Not be quiet and gentle from a place of weakness, but of confidence, of strength. That's where that gentleness comes from, just like Jesus. And so Peter says, we've had examples of this in the past. Again, right here he's talking to ladies, but this applies to, to all of us. He says there have been strong women in the past, like Sarah, who was married to Abraham. And she was patient, which she had to be because Abraham did some, some dumb stuff and she lovingly submitted to him. On the flip side of that, Peter says she did not live in intimidation of her husband, which now starts to bring us to men. Yes, women are to, to live in loving submission to their husbands, but husbands are not to intimidate or create fear in their wives. This means that husbands have a serious command to love their wives the way God loves us, to respect their wives, and yes, to submit. So throughout the years, men love the first half of this passage, right? Corey, the Bible says women are supposed to submit, and I'm like, all right, chief, just keep on reading, (laughs) because you're supposed to submit as well. It's the only way a marriage works. Yes, the woman submits, but, but, if, but if the man doesn't submit, she falls. So if we both submit at the same time mutually, we come together and we honor Christ in that mutual submission. Remember what submission means. I will give up my comforts and my desires for your comforts and desires. Well, no, 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 no. I wanna give up my comforts and desires for your. And if both people do this, you have a beautiful relationship. This works. So husbands must lay down their desires and wants because they want something better for their wives. And it is out of this balance and mutual submission, right? That we find a peaceful, beautiful, wonderful relationship with our spouse. And then Peter says something else provocative that people take way out of context. He's calling women the weaker partner, the weaker vessel, how dare he? Now listen, he is not saying that women are less intelligent. Right? I think right now in the United States, it's like a two to one ratio of women to men that go to college. Things like, so women are not less smart than men. It, they're not less valuable to God than men. That's not what he means. What he means here is actually very pro-woman. This is actually a very, and I mean this in the correct way of saying it, a very feminist thing to say. He is saying most of the time, men are physically stronger than women. Now, I know there's always that one person that says, well, my friend's married to a bodybuilder, so this, you know, the Bible's in you know, void. No. Anyways, most of the time, the husband is physically stronger than the man. And so what Peter is saying, men, you are never to use brute force to intimidate or scare or hurt your wife. That's what he's saying. This is basically anti any kind of domestic abuse, that you're never to use your size and your stature as a means of control over your wife. That is wrong because God doesn't do that to you. So we learn here that we are to never touch women in a a negative physical manner. Any women, because we may be physically more powerful. That's what he is getting at with that. 
The whole point of this first section is though, is we cannot separate how we treat our spouse and our relationship with God. Basically, he, he says that we are co-heirs, which means both of you are equals in this. You mutually submit, you mutually get the same reward in heaven. And so how we treat our spouse matters. In verse seven, Peter even says that if you're a husband and you don't love your wife the way God loves you and treat them the way that God treats you, he says that your, your prayers will be hindered. You cannot have a proper relationship with God and not love your wife the way that you're supposed to. Same thing goes with women though. A woman cannot say, I am a good follower of Jesus if they disrespect and degrade and humiliate their husband. You cannot do that. Just like a man cannot say, I'm a good Christian and I'm not taking care of my wife. We cannot separate our relationship with our spouse and our relationship with God. They are intertwined, okay? That is the first part. So that's how we treat people that we are the closest to. So here is for basically how we treat everyone else. Finally, finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble. I highlighted this part. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. Look at how good this next part is. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Very straightforward. Very easy to understand. Now, who Peter was writing to in this section were Christians, and he was basically talking about how Christians are to treat other Christians. I find this ironic because in our culture, I think we treat other believers worse than we treat other people. We have a tendency, we say brothers and sisters, we're the family of God, we're one church, and most of the time that's, that's, that's completely incorrect. We, we, we have a tendency to really talk bad about other believers, other churches. We love to kick Christians and pastors, especially when they've made a moral mistake or they're down. We don't do a very good job of this. But though Peter is talking about how Christians should treat other Christians, these principles apply to how we, we interact with everyone. The first thing that Peter said is that we're to be like-minded. That doesn't necessarily mean that we think alike. It means that we live harmoniously which means we do not need to let minor differences create major schisms with people. If it's not a heaven or hell thing, it's probably not worth fighting about. And so what we would do, and we would be a lot more content in this life, is instead of constantly pointing out what's different about everyone, which we do really, really well in the United States, you're different from me, therefore I hate you, right? We do this all the time. Why not find things that we have in common and build a relationship with, with that, right? So if we disagree politically and that becomes this big fervor where we fight and we, build, we burn a bridge, let's just not talk about politics, let's talk about movies. Let's talk about sports, let's talk about food or something else, right, that we have in common and we can build a relationship. Now, if we're going to build a relationship with people, there's four things that Peter says we need to do. One, we need to be sympathetic. That means when people are hurting, 
when people are struggling, when people are depressed, when they're sad, whatever the case may be, we are to get into the trenches with them. We're to, we're, to, we're to cry with them when they're crying. We're to grieve with them when they're grieving. The Bible even talks about that if we're one body and even if the pinky gets hurt, the whole body should be aware of that pain. That's how we should be with humanity, right? If you're hurting, I don't have to say anything. I don't have to do anything. I need to be there with you, sympathetic. We are also called to love. We live in a culture that doesn't really understand what love is. Love essentially means that I want the best for you. Even if you don't want the best for me, even if you don't want the best for you, I want the best for you. I want you to know the truth. I want you to be saved. I want you to have community. I wanna build a relationship with you. I want you to prosper. And I mean that not in a prosperity gospel way, but I want you to flourish in life. I want the best for you. That's love. We are to be compassionate, meaning we have a gentle heart towards people. And so oftentimes Christians say they love people, but, but we are so brash and we are not very gentle sometimes and we are called to be gentle. We are also called to be humble, which means we have an accurate view of who we are, an accurate view. You know, I don't really care for social media much. I have a Facebook because the church has a Facebook and I just, it's, it's a way to kind of get the word out about the church. It's interesting though, sometimes I make the mistake of scrolling through my, my feed, right? And if I take these four things and I look at what some people put on that, it is so antithetical to the Bible's teachings. And some of them are, are you know, kind of humorous and, and lighthearted that I see and I'm like, this is ridiculous. And some of them are just outright mean and, and very vitriolic and, and very, uh, very aggressive. But if you take these things and you kind of see how self-proclaiming Christians act sometimes, and it's no wonder why Christianity is failing in the United States. The humility one, I think, is kind of a funny one because you get on, we have on social media the, the opportunity to self-describe to the world who we are, right? And we, we, are, we are not very accurate with these descriptions sometimes. World-changing entrepreneur, visionary, you know, earthquake-starting, whatever. And I'm like, you've never been outside of the country. You have an Etsy store. That's not necessarily the same as owning a chain, you know, with a 500, Fortune 500 company, but we seem to embellish who we are to the world around us. And the Bible says, don't do this. Have an accurate perception of who you are in the world. And then Peter says something that's very, very difficult, that we are not to repay evil for evil. I don't care if you lived in the first century with Peter or if you live in the 21st century in the United States, our natural inclination when someone comes at us is to go back at them. Our natural inclination is if you shove me, instantly my defenses go up and I come back at you. And the Bible says, this is not the way we are to live. This is not what we are called to do. So it doesn't matter where you are and in what era, it is countercultural to say, if someone comes at me, if someone insults me, if someone does something evil to me, the Bible says, don't retaliate, <laughs> bless them. Think about that. Crazy, Corey. We follow, or we claim to follow, Jesus Christ, who was nailed to a cross by aggressive Roman soldiers. And while he hung on that cross, he looked up to the heavens and he said, God, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He prayed a blessing on them. Please forgive them, Father. Ironically enough, after he gave up his spirit and died, right, he gave up his last breath, one of those Roman soldiers, because looking at the way that Jesus died, feeling the impact of Jesus' death, said, surely this was the Son of God. By praying blessing over people, by, by repaying evil with good, 
People's hearts can change. This is how we deflate tense situations. This is how we reconcile arguments. This is how we point people to Jesus. We don't return evil for evil. We return evil with good, with blessing. And then Peter writes this very practical part, verses 10 through 12, and I love it. It makes me think of these people. You've met these people in your life that that seem like they can never get a grip on everything, right? Life is always chaos. Relationships are chaos. Things are falling apart. They can never get ahead. They can never get things squared away. And And they're always in drama and they're always upset and they're always anxious about things. And Peter says, to the one that wants to actually love life, to the one that wants to see good days, he goes on and he says, get away from evil. It's interesting. These people that can never seem to like pull it together, these people who are always in drama, it's because they typically hang out with things that are dramatic. And they're around people that do evil things or maybe they're even even doing evil things. And so Peter says, the Bible says, if we wanna enjoy life, if we wanna have good days, avoid speaking evil things. If you don't say bad things about people, people won't dislike you so much, right? That we are to get away from doing evil deeds. The Bible says in multiple places that our prayers are not answered if we're living in evil. That's why so many people who, 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 who are living in sin, they say, oh, God never answers my prayers. That's because you have not dealt with your sin. That's why James says in the book of James that the prayers of a righteous person avail which leads us to believe that the prayers of an unrighteous person does not avail. And Peter says basically the same thing here. That if we are living in evil, God's face is turned away from us. But if we are living the way God wants us to live, he hears us, he responds to us. We find peace, we find contentment, we have better days, right? We learn to appreciate the life that we live, but we have to turn away from evil and we have to turn towards God. Okay, now we get to the hard part. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This is important. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, that's in the ark, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, 
and powers subject to him. Now, the latter part of that is a little confusing, and I'll explain that, but the first part's pretty easy to understand. Verse 13 is pivotal. When I say pivotal, everything from here on out in the book of 1 Peter kind of hinges on this idea that Christians will be treated poorly, that there will be persecution, and that there will be intimidation. So what he opens up with is this. Normally, in normal circumstances, if you and I treat others the way we wanna be treated, most of the time, right, in our day and age, if I treat you with love and respect and gentleness, you will, you will more than likely reciprocate that. You'll treat me okay too, right? Under normal circumstances. But what Peter is saying is, circumstances aren't always normal. And I would say right now, we live in a time where circumstances are not normal. They're not what they have been. Just because you treat someone well now does not mean that's going to be reciprocated. And we know this to be true. We know this because Jesus said this. Jesus said, in this life, there will be suffering. That means every single one of you in this room, whether you claim to be a, a follower of Jesus or not, you're going to suffer in some way. You're gonna go through pain. You're gonna go through loss. You're gonna go through heartache. You're gonna go through disappointment. You're gonna suffer on some level in this life. But when Jesus talked about suffering and when Peter talks about it here, it is a special and unique suffering that Christians go through because there is a unique hatred simply for Christians. We know this because Jesus said this. Jesus said, don't be surprised when they hate you because they hated me first. What that means is this. If you're a Christian in this room and you follow the teachings of the word of God, people will hate you, but it really doesn't have anything to do with you. It has to do with the God in you and the principles that you're living out. That's what they hate. And Jesus made this clear by saying, it's me that they really hate. There is a unique hatred. There is a contradictory hatred set aside just for Christians. Let's talk about women. We talked about that earlier, right? Oftentimes, uh, American culture says Christianity is misogynistic, and that is nowhere in the Bible. I've read that Bible several times. I've taught the majority of that Bible to big groups of people. I have two daughters. I was raised by a single mom. I have a sister. I don't have any brothers. I'm very pro-woman. So is that book. And there is nothing in that book that disparages or talks down to women. Not at all. In fact, of all religions on planet Earth, you will not find one that is more progressive when it comes to feminism and women is that book. You will not find it. On the flip side of that, there are other world religions that do awful things to women. I know this because I have been in those nations and seen how these women have been treated. Women who have had their genitalia mutilated because they don't want women to have pleasure when they have sex and awful things that happen in the name of other gods. So there is a very contradictory hatred and judgment towards Christianity that is not applied to everyone else because it's not politically correct in our nation. And it is unfair, but it exists. And so Jesus assures us though, if we will be courageous, if we will stick to what we know is right, Jesus says, you don't need to be afraid. And Peter echoes this and says, you're not to live in fear or intimidation of the world. Why? Because Jesus conquered the world. You don't have to be afraid of governments. You don't have to be afraid of culture. You don't have to be afraid of economies. You don't have to be afraid of foreign powers. You don't have to be afraid of anything. Because if you get to the end of your Bible, you see that Jesus wins. And if we are on the side of Jesus, we win too. Amen, right? It means that we don't have to live in fear. You are not designed. Let me tell you this. You are not created to live in fear and intimidation. That is not why you were designed. 
You are not designed to live like that. And the Bible says it over and over. The spirit of fear has not been given to you, the Bible says. So listen, we don't have to live in fear, but there is a big old if to that. I should have capitalized it. The if to that is we can live in fear if we regard Christ the Lord as holy, which means I can live a life free of paralyzing, debilitating fear if I have a relationship with Jesus. Not only if I have a relationship with Jesus, but if I can give a response to my faith, which means I have to read the Bible and live by it. So if I have a relationship with God and I live by the principles and the teachings of the word of God, I have nothing to be afraid of, but I have to be submitted to God. We don't have to live, listen, you, and, and, and I'm 42 years old, I'll be 43 here in a couple of months, and, and I set aside money for my kids to go to college and for me hopefully to retire one day in my you know, mid-80s or something, but anyways. So, <laughs> and when I look at my investments, anyone who has them, right? It, it doesn't always, it's not always fun to do that um, because we see that we have lost a lot of money and sometimes you can go, oh my gosh, things are gonna fall apart, I'm gonna have to work forever, my kids are you know, never gonna get to go to any kind of school or anything, like, and sometimes I can be a, very afraid. And then I have to go back to the word of God and I have to go back to my relationship with Jesus. And I have to remember <laughs> that I worship the God that, that's gonna create streets of gold for me to walk on one day, right? So I don't have to worry about my finances if I trust God with my finances. I don't, have to worry about, I don't have to worry about what happens with the government because I know that all the government, right? The government is on his shoulders. He can carry the government. He, I don't have to be afraid of foreign powers because God sees everything that is happening in the world. He has always known the things that are happening are going to happen. And I just have to go back. And that takes away my fear because Jesus wins. Now here's the other side of that. Oftentimes as Christians, we can become very arrogant in that. And we can actually become very, very rude and disrespectful and mean about our faith. We're gonna talk very real this morning, okay? I'm gonna talk very real with you because it's out there and we need to deal with it in the way that, that, that honors Christ. I said this a couple of weeks ago, but I'll say it again. I am I'm anti-abortion. I do not believe in abortion. But I'm gonna tell you this, I am pro-people. I am pro every single person I lay my eyes on. I do not want them to go to hell. I love them. So even if people do things that I adamantly disagree with, the Bible tells us, and it says in scripture, that I'm still to approach them with gentleness and respect and love. Let, hold on a second, listen, seriously. What we do a lot in American Christianity, and I hear Christians say this bull crap all the time, I'll respect them when they respect me. Not biblical, not biblical. We are to show gentleness and respect and love and kindness to absolutely everyone. And we can say these awful divisive things and call people murderers and killers and all these things. But you know what? One time a group of people called the Pharisees pointed at murderers and things like that. And Jesus crossed his arm and says, you know, if you've ever had hatred in your heart, you've committed murder too. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. How we treat others matters. And we will never bring people to a religion based on love with hatred. You will only attract people to love with true love. Thank you for the person over there. One of these days, I'm gonna say something so good, a wave is gonna start in this room. <laughs> the, the, problem, the problem in American Christianity is this. We let culture dictate how we respond to hostility more than we let the Bible teach us how we respond to hostility. And that's a problem. And that's why people don't wanna to go to church. 
The only way that we are to handle hostility is with love, with love, with love. That doesn't mean we condone things, but we are pro-people, we're pro-all people. And who is the perfect example? Of course, Jesus is the perfect example. But Corey, what these people do is so unrighteous. And the Bible says that the only righteous person that ever existed, Jesus Christ, died for the unrighteous. And you know who was once very unrighteous? This guy. And all of you as well. And the righteous died for the unrighteous so that he can hopefully bring us to God. And his flesh was put to death. And now he is led by the Spirit. When we become Christians, we go through a similar metaphor, metamorphosis. That's what baptism is symbolic of, is the flesh dying, which means our, our, our being led by the flesh, by materialism or greed or racism or hatred or bigotry or, or, or misogyny or, or whatever, whatever our struggle may be, right? That we're not led by those fleshly things anymore. We are led by the Holy Spirit. That's why we say you don't follow your heart. That's flesh. You follow the Holy Spirit that should be in your heart. So we go through a same metamorphosis that Jesus went through when he was crucified and resurrected. And listen, in this, we can feel so alone. It is very easy to feel isolated as a Christian right now in 2022. Very easy to feel isolated. In 2015, the government did a study all over the United States, but the one of Rutherford County in 2015 30% in 2015, this is pre-pandemic, pre-absolute insanity that followed it, right? Pre-pandemic and everything else. In 2015, 30% of Rutherford County went to any house of worship. That's not just Christian churches. That includes uh, Islamic uh, mosques. That includes Buddhist temples. That includes Hindu temples. That includes Unitarian churches. 30%, that's three out of 10 Let's say that 29% that of those are Christians, right? And let's assume that everyone that goes to church actually has a relationship with Jesus, which they don't. What I'm saying is there's not as many Christians walking around as you think there are. And we often have this thing, well, we're in the South, the Bible Belt. Pre-pandemic and churches have shrunk dramatically. Praise God, this one hasn't. But a lot of them have dramatically to where I'd say those numbers are considerably lower. If you think one out of four is winning... I don't. We are the minorities and we can easily feel isolated in that. That's why Peter uses the example of Noah. You wanna talk about feeling isolated. He said in the whole world, there was only eight people, Noah and his family. And, and, and Peter was writing this to a group of Christians who were exiled and persecuted and felt like outsiders in their own homeland. And he says, listen, you're not alone. God sees you. Just like God saw Noah and saved him, God sees you too. And he will save you too, but we have to hold on to the faith. And then he connects this to baptism. And you're like, how does this work? How does that connect to baptism? Just like Noah was saved by water, water is symbolic of our salvation. Just like, just like Noah chose to be obedient to God and spend 120 years building an ark while everyone thought he was crazy, right? Because of his dedication, water saved him. Because of us dedicating our lives to Christ, water is symbolic of our salvation. But if we deny that salvation, just like evil people were drowned in Noah's day, evil people will drown eventually in our day. So we have to accept that salvation. And at the very end of this, I love this, and, and, and this is so important for us. 
It says, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, who sits at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Listen, if you're going to find strength now, if you're going to find strength in the future, you have to know that Jesus sits securely on the throne. I, I, I like to go out in my garage a lot. I've got a couple, of old, a couple of old cars and I'll tinker with my old cars out there and I'll turn on the radio and I'll listen to different news stations and stuff and it's depressing, right? And you can only listen to it for a certain amount of time and then I have to put on the Ramones, which you know it's really bad if you have to play punk rock to bring yourself up. So anyways, so like... Turn off, turn off the news because it can be bad. And what can happen is you start hearing all these things about the economy. You start hearing things about the government. You start hearing things about, about you know, innocent people in Ukraine being slaughtered and no one will step in and help. And you hear all these things and you can, it can start to seep into you, can it? And instantly we can, we can start to forget that Jesus Christ is on the throne. He sits over all authorities. He sits over all powers. He even sits over all angels and everything else that he's in control. And so we need to know when it looks like the world is on fire around us, God is in control. God sits securely on the throne. We also have to understand that this life is temporary and our understanding of him sitting on the throne will determine where we go for eternity. So we need to find strength, we need to find stability. The only way that we can find the power to muster up the power to love even the most hostile people is we must go back and remember that Jesus is in control, that he loves us, that he wants what's best for us, that there is a future waiting for us. And that's where we find the strength to keep pushing on. So let's go back to the first point. If you're in this room and you're married, this is for you. If you're not, give me a second, I'll, I'll get to you. If you're in this room and you're married, married couples are to mutually submit. If only one person does it, it collapses. Both of us mutually submit, and when we mutually submit, it points to God. Remember, submission is not a dirty word. Submission means I will give up my rights and privileges and desires because I want your rights and privileges and desires to be met. And if both people do that, you're gonna have an absolutely beautiful relationship. We are also, if you are in this room and you are married to a non-believing spouse, which there are quite a few in our church, if you are married to a non-believing spouse, whether you be a man or a woman, live out the Bible. Don't browbeat your spouse. Don't condescend your spouse. Don't preach at your spouse. Live the principles of the Bible. And in showing that love and showing that respect, you may possibly convince a non-believer to be a believer. Paul talks about the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I believe. The bottom line is this, I cannot say that I love Jesus if I do not love my spouse the way that the Bible tells me to love my spouse. I cannot. In fact, and I'm not talking bad about anyone that's not married, marriage in this life is the closest example to our eternity in heaven that we will have. And I know some of you are like, that's not my marriage. It can be your marriage. <laughs> if both of you will put the work in. If you will submit to each other and submit to God, it can be that. Okay, now for the rest of us. With all people you interact with, we are to live harmoniously as much as possible. This means that minor disagreements should not become major schisms. Find something that you do have in common and talk about that. Build a relationship with that, right? Continue to get to know people. Avoid speaking evil things. 
If we, if, if we hate drama and if we hate all the, all the things that come along with gossip and slander, stop doing those things. And then we need to learn to not repay evil with evil. If someone does something evil to you, do you know what I've found over the years? Because as a pastor of a you know, pretty good sized church and writing a couple of books and all that stuff, there are people that love to say bad things about you. They've never met you, they've never shaken your hand, but they love to say awful things about you. What I have learned over the years, if I will just let God fight my battles, the truth always bubbles up to the surface. God always takes care of me. If you are in the right, it's okay. Vengeance is not yours. Vengeance is God's. He will deal with it. And a lot of us say, well, I've never seen justice in my lifetime. You may not see justice in your lifetime, but I'm gonna tell you this. When Christ comes back, every evil action that has ever, ever taken place will be held into account. God will make sure of it. It's not our battle to fight. It is his battle to fight. But to achieve loving others and treating others well, we have to be sympathetic. We have to learn to be gentle. We have to learn to be humble. We have to learn to want what is best for other people, even if they don't want what's best for you. And we are to live in God's grace and we are to show God's grace. We show God's grace when other people have shortcomings and we have to, we have to understand, guys, you're not always gonna be patient and good with people either. So have a little bit of grace for yourself. Ask God to forgive you and just work on it. Can I tell you a story real quick? Good example of this. So we, we went on a vacation, longest vacation I've ever taken my family on. We were gone like 12 days. It was absolutely wonderful. And we were down by the beach and, and I love the ocean. I could live in the ocean. And um, they had uh, one grocery store on, in, in this area we were at. It's a Publix. So not only are you on vacation, you feel a little bit higher class when you shop at Publix every day. And... Um, that's, that's what I did, because it was the only, only grocery store. Um, but at the grocery store that I went to many, many times, the, I, I kid you not, the way the parking lot was laid out from about the edge of the stage here, not this pole, but the other one, that's as far away from the building as you could park. That was the farthest parking space, 60 feet maybe, 50, 60 feet. Rolled up one day, we'd been at the beach all day, I was gonna pick up some stuff for dinner, I roll up, and they're just shopping carts all over the place, right? all over the place. And I'm gonna tell you, if you're a Christian and you don't put your shopping cart back up, <laughs> I, I personally have a lot of grace for like, like, you know, drug addicts and bank robbers, but when it comes to the people that leave their shopping cart out, <laughs> I become a pretty judgmental person. <laughs> Just letting you know. And so, <laughs> so I roll up and, and these poor kids that work at Publix, man, it's like 105 degrees outside and these kids are wearing their uniforms and their aprons and I mean, they're slumped over, drenched in sweat. And I'm like, man, it's, it's like 50 feet, 50 feet. And so I find my brain going to bad places and I'm like, Lord, this is a snapshot of humanity right here, right? This is how bad we have become. And I grab a cart and I walk up and this poor kid, he goes, are you, are you coming or going, right? Because... I said, man, I said, I'm the person that brings their cart back. I wanted him to know, you know, like I'm a decent human, right? I'm bringing my cart back to you. But I'm going to tell you, this is how petty I can be sometimes. I'm just confessing all to you guys. My brain starts going to bad places. It was almost like a trigger for me. God, humanity has fallen apart. When are you coming back, right? We can't even put up shopping carts. When are you, <laughs> you going to come back and get us, God? And I, I do, I start sliding down this slope, man. We are falling apart as a people. And I had to step back and go, God, please have mercy on me because I've been super judgmental 
and I should be a little bit more gracious with these people too. You know, maybe they got three kids with them and they had $300 worth of groceries and, you know, they're doing all they can just to not drop children and, you know, eggs, you know, like have some grace. But this is what we're called to live in, to show it and to also understand that we're not always gonna get it right either. And we should be a little gracious with ourselves sometimes. Now to those that can be hostile with us, loving those who hate us and ridicule us may be the most countercultural and God-honoring thing we can possibly do. Loving those that hate us. Jesus said some crazy stuff. Jesus said, if they take your shirt, give them your shoes. Jesus said, if they hit your cheek, offer the other one. Jesus said, if they ask you to walk a mile, walk two. And this is what we're supposed to follow. This is so God-honoring that if someone spits in my face, that I say, can I buy you a cup of coffee? Can I do something for you, right? Now, let me also tell you this. This is only going to get more difficult. If you cannot love people in the United States in 2022, you're not gonna be able to do it in 2024. It's an election year. <laughs> I'm serious. Boy, Christians show their butts in election years. We fall apart at the seams over election years. If you cannot love people diametrically opposed to you today, you're not gonna be able to do it five years from now, 10 years from now, because it's only gonna get more complicated. It's only gonna get more difficult. The hostility towards Christianity is only going to grow. How do you say that, Corey? Because it's what the whole book of Revelation is about. So what are we to do? We must pray. I'm, I'm, I'm saying this seriously. You must pray in your car you, you must pray for God to help you, not only to fill you up with the Spirit, but to put a love in you. And then we must go to the Word of God and get wisdom from this book, get encouragement from this book. There are promises in this book that if we will live a certain way and honor God, God will take care of us. We will have better days. That's what the Bible says. So we have to pray and we have to go back to the Word of God. We must also live in love and not live in fear. I will say it again because someone needs to hear it today. You are not designed to live in fear. The Bible says you've not been given a spirit of fear. You've been given a spirit of power. You've been given a spirit of confidence, not in yourself, but in Christ that you follow. Don't let fear porn, that's what I call the news. Don't let that get under your skin. Don't let that dictate how you treat other people. It's amazing. In the last three or four years, if you listen to the news enough, you would think that everyone's a racist, everyone hates you, everyone's misogynistic, everyone's a bigot, everyone's you know, out to get you. And then you go out and meet real people and you're like, most of them aren't that bad. I was told that everything was burning down and that everyone hated me. But this person was actually really kind to me. We're not to live in fear. If Jesus is our Lord, you have nothing to be afraid of. Not governments, not world powers, not economies, nothing. You have nothing to be afraid of as long as your hope is in Christ. Nothing to be afraid of. Now, when it comes to how we treat others, this is my last slide. Jesus said this, everyone will know who you are. Everyone will know you are my disciples by how you treat other people. Chew on that one for a second. Not by the church you go to, not by the songs you sing, not, not how, by how many verses you can quote, not how many Christian tattoos you have or, or, or not how many bumper stickers are on your car. 
you will be known as a follower of Christ by how you love others. Now, if we are to really love others, that means that we do share Jesus with people. Listen, this is so important. If we truly say we love people, we have to share Jesus with them at some point. But we are completely incapable of sharing Jesus with people if we have not demonstrated Jesus and how we live first. So you can call people names that disagree with you, which is something Jesus didn't do, but it is impossible to bring people to a religion of love when we are demonstrating hate. But if I demonstrate Jesus, who is pure love, right? If I demonstrate Jesus, then I have the opportunity to speak truth to you about Jesus. And you may listen to me because I've demonstrated the goodness of God. Now I can tell you about the goodness of God. And listen, here's the tough part, the toughest thing you'll hear all day. This is for all people. All people. It is not, quoting the Bible again, it is not God's desire that any perish. That means it is not God's desire for any to go to hell. That doesn't mean everyone's going to accept what you say. And it doesn't mean that we are to condone sinful actions. We are not to condone sinful actions. But we are to love and present the gospel to absolutely everyone we can. Regardless of what they think, regardless of what they act, regardless of what they have done, regardless of what they have done to you. All people, this is the Jesus model. And people say, Corey, that's impossible. No one except Jesus could do what he did on the cross. And then chapter seven of the book of Acts, there's a young man named Stephen. Bible says he was a good looking guy. I hope if the Bible was written and I was in it that they just slide in there. When we get to heaven, we'll be walking around and it's like, it's a good looking guy, Stephen, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, Stephen was the first person who ever got killed for believing in Jesus, the first martyr. And it says in Acts chapter seven that when Stephen was on his knees in a public street and they were throwing rocks at his head about to kill him, what, is, what, is, what does he do? It says that he looks up, the skies open up and he said, Lord, forgive him. They don't know what they're doing. He quoted Jesus Christ when he was on the cross as he was dying for his faith, as he was blessing those that cursed him, blessing those that were doing evil to him. Forgive him, God. They don't know what they're doing. And you know what's interesting about that? You know who one of those men in the crowd was? A young man who eventually was called Paul. Isn't it amazing what our lifestyle can do? And that man went on to write 70% of the New Testament. Would you bow your heads with me, please? It is not easy, guys. I'm gonna tell you one quick story. About 2003, 2004, I had be, been a Christian for maybe a year and I loved Jesus, but I, I realized I did not like people. Honestly, I, I, I had no patience for people. And I knew that I was supposed to love people. So the little church that I got saved in had a prayer room, a little, little eight by eight or 10 by 10 room with a bunch of fake trees in it. I went into this little prayer room. I laid down on my stomach. I put my face in the floor and I said, God, you have to put a love for people in my heart. I don't have it. You have to plant that seed in my heart. And he did. I can honestly tell you, I love people. I love the worst that you can think of. I, 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 
I love hypocritical Christians. I, I, love, I love people that, that are adamantly against what I teach and what I believe in. I genuinely love people. But that's because I asked for God to put that love in my heart. Some of you this morning may need to get to that point. You may need to find a place to lay down on the floor and here or at home or somewhere. And you may have to say, God, give me a patience and a love and a desire to spread the gospel to people. Help me love people. Even if I disagree with everything they do, let me love them. If you're in this room and you're not a believer, or maybe you're new to the faith, up here on my right, your left, is Pastor Jonathan. He's in charge of our discipleship. If you wanna ask him any questions, this young man was not always a believer, came to his faith in his 20s. If you wanna ask any questions for him, please come up and ask some questions. We have men and women on both sides of the stage if you need prayer for anything in your life. And then the last thing is all the way around the room, wherever you see a lamp on a table, there's communion. And then also in the middle section, there's communion on the poles if you would rather do that and not get in line. That represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And all of us who have asked God to forgive us of our sins, we can take communion. Here's what I wanna challenge you with a little bit today if you decide to take communion. If you have asked God to forgive you of your sins and you take communion today, I want you to remember when you were at your worst. I want, to rem I want you to remember a little bit. I think it's very important that we never forget what God has saved us from. I want you to remember when you were as lost as you've ever been, addicted, hateful, racist, misogynist, if you were just doing evil things, addicted to things, lust or porn or infidelity, whatever it was, the worst you've ever been. And then I want you to remember this, that when you were still a sinner, God died for you. That Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for you. That he forgives us of our sins, that he cut through all that crap. And he saw something in you that you didn't even see in yourself and that he saved you. I want you to remember that. And then if we remember how much God has saved us from, it makes us easier when we go out into the world and we see lost people. Because we have empathy, we have grace. Father, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you, Lord, for everything you've done in our lives. God, outside is a confused, broken world. I pray, Father, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we can be the light, that we can be the salt, that we can love people the way that you love people, that we can see people the way you see people, God. Give us grace, Lord, and let us be distributors of grace, God. We thank you so much. Bless everyone in this room until we meet again. Keep them safe, Lord. Keep their families safe. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself.